Women veterans who were wounded or injured are more likely to have post-traumatic stress disorder and to commit suicide than men. That's according to the Wounded Warrior Project, which surveyed 18,000 male and female veterans. Joining me with more of the findings, the project vice president, Tracy Farrell. Ms. Farrell, good to have you with us. Thanks so much, Tom, for this opportunity to speak with you. And what were you looking at here, and how did you go about finding this information? So, you know, what's amazing to me, and I I served for 22 and a half years, but women represent the fastest growing population in the military and the veteran communities. And yet, time after time, we're hearing that women, as they transition from service, don't have the support in their communities that they need in order to thrive as a civilian. And so we took information from our annual warrior survey, which we do every other year, and have 5,000 responses from women. And then we culled through those responses and found, as you said, that there's some specific challenges that women face with regards to financial wellness, access to care, mental wellness, social health, military transition, and military sexual trauma. And from that, we showed in this report, which is available online on our website, what those differences were, and we made some recommendations on the way forward. All right. And so I guess these recommendations in many ways fall on the Veterans Affairs Department and the Veterans Health Administration. That and I would say with regards to transition programs, a a matching up of DOD and VA, as well as political appointees and representatives. There's some policy recommendations as well. And then, as always, Wounded Warrior Project is a veteran service organization, a nonprofit, and we have recommendations for our peers in that space as well. And just some of the details of the findings with respect to mainly suicide, which Mm -hmm. is just a persistent and terrible issue that VA and so many organizations have been trying to deal with in their own different ways. What is the fact there that you found with respect to female veterans that were injured or wounded? Wounded Warrior Project women warriors are more likely to present with moderate to severe symptoms of post-traumatic stress, depression, and anxiety than their male peers. And the rates of suicidal ideation and the prevalence of at least one attempted suicide, as you mentioned, are higher in women warriors than in their male warriors. So access to care is something that we really focus on. Is the VA manned and able to give the mental health treatment that is required? Do we take away the barriers to care, such as child care or hours of operation or telehealth? You know, a lot of people have embraced telehealth after COVID, and we see that women have taken that up on an uptick higher than men. So with regard to mental wellness, we're just looking at how do we better serve them and how do we ensure that women are on their feet as they engage in their communities? And looking at some of the survey results from a standpoint of where people served, the bulk, almost two-thirds, well, 61% were Army veterans. Mm -hmm. And in the last 20 years, it is Army that has taken the brunt of activities overseas that the United States has been engaged in. Only 18% of your respondents were Navy and, you know, a small percentage in Coast Guard, 17% in Air Force. So they're more likely to be injured, at least in the last 20 or so years of experience, by virtue of being in the Army. Mm -hmm. That's absolutely right. But we also see military sexual trauma does not identify along specific service identification. And so that's an area that we've looked at 
over the years and how best to serve women warriors who experience MST. And again, that goes back to access to care and ensuring sensitivity within the VA and within those who serve women and men with military sexual trauma so that they don't have to keep on reliving their story and can get on the path to healing. In some ways, the sexual trauma is the worst kind of injury because it is inflicted by people you expect to be comrades. That's what we hear quite often, Tom, from those we serve. We're speaking with Tracy Farrell. She's vice president for partnerships and operations at the Wounded Warrior Project. Well, given these findings that you know women maybe have a worse time of it post-military, what are your main recommendations and for whom? Sure. So I think first and foremost is that first step of transition. The military to civilian transition process must be enhanced and and include ongoing support. You know, when I transitioned from the military, I thought I was just going to take off my military uniform and then the next day be this glorious civilian in the world. And I may have been, but in my own eyes, I wasn't quite there yet. It took me quite a few months to get accustomed to not being in the military anymore, to making sure I had my resume in line, and to connecting with other veterans. And just a brief question there. You mentioned you were in for 22 years, a career really. Is there a difference, do you think, between people that might enlist, do their two or four years and then get out versus people that had a career where you were in uniform for, you know, a long time? I think there's two areas where there's differences. One is that of going in and coming out with perhaps not a college education, but deciding to go on for further education, or perhaps going in at 18, vice 22, when I went into after college age, right? And your formative years are in the military. But I think the other thing that we find, because Wounded Warrior Project serves individuals who have been wounded, ill, or injured concurrent with their service, is a difference between getting out on your own terms or getting out because the military tells you to, um, because you're injured and can no longer serve. Many of the warriors I talked to thought this was going to be a career for them. They really enjoyed what they were doing and serving their nation. And then when they were injured, they couldn't do that anymore. And so that plan to stay in forever or for 20 or some years fell away from them and they didn't have a backup plan. And so that's the bigger differentiator, I find. Sure. All right. And, uh, Briefly, the transition services provided by the military, we often hear they could be a little bit stronger. Was that your experience? That was uh, my experience as well. And I think they've come a long way. In fact, I know they have because I follow what they're doing. And they've developed some internship processes. They've focused more on collaboration with the VA. But I do think, especially with regards to women, I think a supplemental track during this transition program that focuses on gender-specific health care benefits and services available to women veterans in their communities would benefit all of the women transitioning. Women just don't know what's in their communities when they transition. And them being 10% right now of the veteran population, that's a small amount. We're going to grow to 18% by 2040, which is larger, but we have to ensure that women veterans are aware of the support that's out there for them. And all those VFW halls are going to have to accommodate themselves, I think, as the years go by. And anyway, we were talking about recommendations before I interrupted you. What about for Veterans Affairs? Because they've made a lot of progress, too, in treating women over the past couple of decades. Yeah, they have done so much in the past years to establish 
establish some women health clinics, expand their offerings with regards to women's health care, but it's not prevalent across the country. So we need, as a nation, to continue to leverage community-based resources and telehealth, as I mentioned before, to address some of the barriers of care that women experience. And for employers who want to hire veterans or might be required to hire veterans under some federal contract, and for federal agencies that often prefer to hire veterans, what should those people know that are not care providers but are job providers and presumably they want people to succeed? Sure. I think there's a couple of things. We need to somehow still have a stigma about veterans having PTSD in the workplace, and that should be erased, right? And so I think embracing the qualities of goodness, the qualities of leadership, the qualities of followership, the qualities of initiative that the military imbues in their population is really important. And don't look just at the resume, but look at what the person offers. And there's tons of organizations helping veterans get jobs, so connect with them. And there is one uh, former military officer out there, and he's written a book of Bill Toti, just simply saying, don't hire because of perceived leadership skills in the military, but rather because of skills, skills, things you can Mm -hmm. actually do. And not to presume everybody's going to be a commanding general type of person (laughs) just because they're a veteran. I mean, that's also a bad stereotype too, isn't it? Yeah, it is. In fact, I was a military police officer, and a lot of the men and women that left my command wanted to go work in the police force or the FBI or the CIA, and were able to use the skill sets that they learned as military police, whether it be investigators or patrols or even overseas, to benefit their communities in that capacity. And just briefly, what are you doing with this report? I mean, it comes out every couple of years. It's comprehensive. There's you know 40 pages of findings here. Who should read it, and how are you getting it out there? A couple of weeks ago, on the launch of the report, we brought 50 women warriors to Capitol Hill and visited with those ladies' uh, representatives and the congressmen and just talked about the challenges that they were having. And the report is available online, and so it's accessible to anybody who would like to look at it, and it's at woundedwarriorproject.org. And we're sharing it widely with the general public, with veteran service organizations, with the VA, and with DOD as interested so that they can hear what's happening to women warriors across our nation. Tracy Farrell is Vice President for Partnerships and Operations at the Wounded Warrior Project. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Tom. Have a great day. And we'll post this interview along with a link to that complete report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture. Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven 
aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective. We get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance and I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is 
what do they need when they need it, and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus. Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. 
And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, 
find my own confidence and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.